the stakes for playing video games competitively have gotten higher. There's a whole industry of people who develop cheats for sale. Hi, and welcome to Savvy Reason's Malicious Life B-Sides. I'm Ren Levy. A few months ago, EA, publisher of the FIFA game series, Madden NFL, The Sims, and other well-known computer games, announced that its software will include a kernel mode anti-cheat component. This announcement made some people very uneasy, to put it mildly. Take, for example, this Reddit post by user S.E. Gopher, titled The Insanity of EA's Anti-Cheat System. Quote, After reading about the latest headline on EA's new anti-cheat system, I feel compelled to beg the gaming community not to install any EA games that use this system. Know that these kernel-level systems are extremely dangerous. Think twice about any application that requests kernel modifications and whether you want that developer to have complete access to your system. End quote. What made U.S.E. Gopher so apprehensive about this new software? I mean, nobody likes cheaters, especially in video games. We play games to have fun, and nothing hurts the joy of playing a good game more than losing to a cheater. And when it comes to professional eSports tournaments, cheating is an even bigger issue. That is why EA is not the only publisher to implement kernel mode anti-cheat software in their games. League of Legends and Valorant, for example, use similar software. So, what's the problem? The answer is kernel mode. So, what is kernel mode? Operating systems serve as an abstraction layer between applications and hardware. With an operating system, a game developer, for example, doesn't need to know how to write bits to a hard drive. She can just ask the operating system to save a given file, And the operating system takes care of the rest. This separation also serves to protect the system from accidental or malicious harm, since if an application has full access to the hard drive, for example, it could easily erase or manipulate data belonging to other applications. That's why most applications run in what's called user mode or user space, a restricted mode of operation which prevents the application from accessing certain parts of the operating system. As an analogy, think of a bowling alley. We don't want bowling players to mess around with the delicate machinery that returns the balls or sets the pins. We want them to stay in front of the bowling lanes, next to the bar and arcade games. That's their user space. But some people do need to have access to the bowling alley's pin-setting machinery. Technicians, for example. Similarly, some applications need to have special access to these normally restricted areas of the operating system. And so these special applications operate in kernel mode, a privileged mode of operation. Okay, now that we know the difference between user mode and kernel mode, what's the problem with EA's anti-cheat software having kernel mode access to the operating system? The key word here is trust. 
We allow technicians to access the bowling machinery because we trust them. They know what they're doing and they won't break stuff or maliciously mess with the system to, I don't know, have their kids score strikes. Do we trust EA or any other game studio or publisher to not exploit this rare privilege in their favor or make mistakes that will allow some malicious programs access to the most sacred innards of our operating system? This question is the focus of the following conversation between Nate Nelson, our senior producer, and Paul Chamberlain, a veteran game developer and studio head and technical director at New Avalon Game Studio. Nate and Paul discuss the benefits and risks of running anti-cheat software in kernel mode and alternative ways to make life harder for cheaters. Enjoy the interview. How do people cheat in video games? So the most common types of cheating in video games involve modifying the uh, game on, on their computer to give it additional functionality that the game developer didn't intend. Alternatively, at writing companion programs that automate or uh, modify the, the game on behalf of the player. Uh, this can be as simple as a... Uh, automation tool that just clicks the mouse button for you over and over again so you don't have to, and as complicated as um, kernel drivers that modify the fundamental uh, way that your operating system and your hardware interacts. And there's a whole economy around cheats, right? Like, can you sort of paint a picture of this? Yeah, as uh, cheat development has become more complicated and expensive and uh, the stakes for playing video games competitively have gotten higher. There's a whole industry of people who develop cheats for sale, uh, for profit to people who would like to cheat in video games. And uh, usually how this works is via a subscription service. So uh, you might pay uh, five, 10, 20, $100 plus a month for access to cheats that uh, improve your performance at a video game. Is this all above board or are we talking about like the dark web or am I taking this way too far? <laughs> we'll call it the, the gray web. It's uh, mostly Discord servers, Telegram groups and the like. But if you Google for insert game name here cheats, you'll probably pretty quickly find yourself with a link to a Discord server or in some cases they run like an e-commerce website and you can just add a cheat to your shopping cart but uh, usually they're a little bit more buried than that to try and stay out of the notice of the game developers for a little while. And do we know how many people are trying and or actually doing this? Globally across all games, it, it would be thousands or tens of thousands of uh, cheaters potentially, uh, though in any particular game, the percentage of players cheating is very small, uh, usually well below 1%. But on the cheat developer side, uh, there are probably probably hundreds or low thousands of uh, professional cheat developers. Um, the The level of professionalism changes a lot. Like a lot of these people are hobbyists who then realize that they've built something that there's demand for, so they might as well sell it. And so, for all of the cheating software that now exists in the world there is now anti-cheating software. Can you give me the rundown of how anti-cheat works? 
Yeah, so anti-cheat software is either part of a game itself or a sort of external piece of software that's included with the game. Anti-cheat software generally makes it harder for cheats to be developed by um, obscuring or um, encrypting the, the game itself, but also have features to try and detect the tampering that would um, indicate that cheating is happening. Right, because I could imagine, for example, somebody writing the kind of cheating software that could mask itself as, you know, not cheating software, like some ordinary Windows program. So how does anti-cheat detect what would constitute all the kinds of cheating that could exist in the world? The two major ways that an anti-cheat uh, software will determine that a player is cheating is either through detecting a known cheat, like the developers have seen this particular cheating software before and they can recognize it again, or through uh, the behavior of the software. So if the software modifies specific things inside the game, that is strongly likely that that software is, is cheat software. Or if a player starts performing in a way that is very unlikely for an unassisted, non-cheating player, then then uh, any unusual software may be cheat software. And so in order to detect this cheat software, um, the anti-cheat software needs to operate in the kinds of places on my PC that the cheat software would. And now that the cheat software has gotten pretty sophisticated, it goes pretty down low to try to escape the anti-cheat software. So you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but it's sort of this race to the bottom that ends in the kernel. So can we talk about just briefly what a computer kernel is for those who don't know, and then why it might be that this stage in the process becomes a little bit sensitive from an infosec perspective? So the kernel is the, the heart of your computer's operating system, and it, it controls the sort of uh, interface between software and hardware. It's the sort of it's the part of your operating system that manages how your hardware works. So if you've ever installed a graphics driver, that's uh, adding a piece of software to your operating system's kernel. Or uh, if your computer, um, your computer program, the software you're running needs to talk to the internet or write something to disk, it will hand off that task to uh, the operating systems kernel, which will have uh, the understanding of how to, say, write something to your hard drive or uh, send a message out your network card. For this so-called so sort of race race to the bottom, the idea is that the deeper inside the operating system a piece of software is, whether it's a cheat or other, it has a lot of influence over anything that's at a higher level. Um, so for example, if an anti-cheat system wanted to detect cheats by looking for um, cheat software on your hard drive, if the cheat was running in the kernel, it could lie to the anti-cheat software and say, no, that cheat.exe isn't on this computer. And so one of the ways to uh, combat this, like, um, this disguise, this uh, obfuscation is to also be inside the kernel. Um, however, writing software that lives inside the, the kernel, like device drivers or certain types of uh, cheats or viruses, 
is difficult because um, a lot of the things that we've developed in uh, to make software writing easy, abstractions and tools and such, are just not available from the kernel. So you're writing at a sort of more basic, lower level, and it is both more time-consuming and um, you have fewer safety rails for if you make a mistake. Um, for example, if when working on a video game, I write some bad code, all that will happen is the game will crash, which is really annoying, but usually you can just restart the game and continue from there. But if there is a similar bug in a kernel driver, um, you're, you'll see a blue screen of death and your whole computer will reboot, which is much more inconvenient. Around what time in history did developers realize that anti-cheat had to go so far down as to reach the kernel level? One of the earliest kernel drivers uh, for cheating purposes was a, a security research project that was unveiled at um, DEF CON, uh, the security conference one year uh, for uh, World of Warcraft. And it was actually a proof of concept of how you could use a, a certain memory uh, modification trick, a, a page table modification trick to avoid the gaze of uh, Blizzard's World of Warcraft anti-cheat called, called Warden. I think this was approximately 2007. I wouldn't say that's when the, this technique became widespread, but in the uh, few years the, to follow, it became increasingly common for anti, uh, sorry, for uh, cheat developers to write kernel drivers as part of their cheat packages. And when did this become a controversial thing? Because I've seen reactions from players of, you know, multiplayer shooters and sports games and whatnot who are really unhappy about this. Cheats using uh, kernel techniques weren't very um, controversial because they weren't very widespread. But the response from game developers to also move their anti-cheat efforts into the kernel became a little controversial because uh, there had been other uh, types of software that had moved into the kernel that had um, been a poor, poor steward and were like sort of user unfriendly. Um, perhaps most famously were uh, DRM uh, protection. I think one of the major music labels had a... Um, Dear, uh, a driver that would install if you tried to play their music off a CD on your computer. And um, one of the things it, it did was hide certain files from your computer so it wouldn't appear to the user. Um, this was, a, I think, a defense mechanism to prevent users from easily uninstalling the, the DRM. But since this was both not something that the, the users were interested in because like um, the people who were listening to the music aren't really interested in digital rights management software. Uh, it also had the side effect of helping malicious files from hiding uh, because uh, the system, how it worked was that any file that had a certain pattern of characters in the file name would be invisible. And so if you were writing uh, a virus of some kind, uh, uh, you could name your files that too. And if this particular piece, the driver from this particular music CD was on your computer, that file would be invisible. And so when anti-cheat technology started going into the kernel, uh, a lot of people were reminded of this, these earlier times where uh, people had written 
uh, device drivers for, for kernels that weren't always in the user's interest and often had side effects that were uh, either problematic from a security perspective or uh, just vaguely user hostile. Right. And, and to give people a sense of how widespread this is, um, you know, some of the games you've worked on, you could mention, um, are some of the most popular multiplayer games in the world. So a lot of the biggest video games out there are now using kernel-level anti-cheat, right? Yes. Uh, it is very common nowadays for kernel-level anti-cheat to be present in uh, multiplayer video games, but it's not entirely ubiquitous. Uh, for example, um, League of Legends, which is the first game I worked anti-cheat for, uh, still doesn't use kernel anti-cheat as far as I know. Um, and um, very recently, I helped out on a game called Omega Strikers from Odyssey Interactive, and they didn't launch with kernel anti-cheat either. It really depends on the goal of your, your game and what you think the threat landscape is when it comes to uh, cheating. That said, a lot of the commercially available anti-cheat software platforms uh, do involve a kernel anti-cheat component. So if you're a developer who doesn't have a lot of experience with anti-cheat and you opt to licensing a, a third-party anti-cheat platform, you will often get uh, kernel-level anti-cheat by default, which is one of the reasons why I'd probably say um, a majority of competitive online games these days have kernel components in their anti-cheat systems. The best strategy for organizations to avoid becoming a victim of ransomware is to prevent the attack from being successful in the first place. CyberReason remains undefeated in the fight against ransomware because it moved beyond alerting to deliver an operation-centric approach that detects and prevents ransomware attacks at the earliest stages of initial ingress and lateral movement. The CyberReason predictive response capability disrupts ransomware attacks prior to data exfiltration and long before the ransomware payload can be delivered. Visit cyberreason.com to learn more about predictive ransomware protection and how your organization can realize both increased efficiency and efficacy through an operation-centric approach to security operations. Now that we've established all that, let's talk about where the problems start to come in. Most game companies, I think, are, you know, they're perfectly legit, they're doing good things for the right reasons, but then there are some others, and, you know, I'm not going to name names, although the one I'm thinking of in my head right now rhymes with D-Day, whom I just wouldn't trust in the innermost parts of my computer to do the kinds of things that would be in my interest. Do I just have to resign myself to the fact that these companies, if I want to play their games, will be able to run around in the most sensitive parts of my machine? Or is there something that you would tell people to make them feel a little bit better about all this? When it comes to um, software running in the kernel of your, your computer versus regular software, it's sensitive in the sense that it is deeply embedded in the computer, but in some ways it is uh, not any more sensitive in terms of uh, potential harm to your personal information. Uh, for example, 
all, all the things that most of us want to keep private on about on our computer, our, our passwords, our browsing history, our financial information is all accessible without access to the kernel. So while there is like additional access that running inside the kernel will grant software, it's often not directly relevant to the kind of privacy and security implications that as people living in a digital society, we care the most about. From a security perspective, let's say that I trust Riot Epic, any other reputable gaming studio to not install like secret spyware on my computer. Fine. On this show, though, we've told stories of all kinds of gaming company hacks, like Steam, for example, one of the most reputable names in the industry, and Sony got hacked more than once. I don't have to necessarily trust Riot Epic or any other reputable game studio to have perfect cybersecurity. So how can I be comfortable giving a game developer access to what amounts to the most sensitive part of my computer? Supply chain attacks where a hacker would compromise a uh, developer to modify the software that they distribute while um, totally possible and have happened are fairly rare because um, it's a relatively obvious persistent mechanism that um, if if a uh, company gets breached, they get uh, get hackers onto their network, it is much easier for them to grab information one time, like say dump a database of personal information, um, making persistent changes that need to, to live forever undetected are very likely to be detected. Maybe not immediately, but in the, the near term. So uh, while you can do kind of a smash and grab where you get access to a a network and grab all of the sensitive information and get out, you, regardless of whether you're discovered or not, you still have that sensitive information. Um, but when it comes to that second degree of uh, modifying the product that that company provides, there is a almost inevitable discovery because not only is it a persistent change that could be detected, if it makes it this far to like the users of that software, and there are now potentially millions of people who could also observe the the modified behavior. But in case people are worried about this worst case scenario, what kinds of security do games companies apply to their new releases to ensure that the software they're pushing um, is is safe when it accesses such low levels? Yeah, so this depends a lot of, on the size and sophistication of the game studio in question. But at the game studios that, that I've worked at, there has generally been an uh, entire like application security team. So inside of a broader trust and safety, information security sort of department, there'll be a team of application security professionals that are doing uh, both reviews of of software that go, goes out, but also consulting work on the, the design and implementation of the major software components that are going to go into these, these games. Um, they're also usually the people who run bug bounty programs like you would see on platforms like HackerOne. 
where uh, security researchers can report security issues they find in the game or the service ecosystem that supports the game in exchange for uh, cash payouts. And uh, both at Epic and Riot, the, these departments were augmented by um, the kind of um, application security consultancy groups that um, some of the, the best uh, talent in the world to bring in to do external audits where they get access to the product and the code base and uh, crawl over it looking for security vulnerabilities. Fair enough, although I imagine some people will still be skeptical, if only because, you know, some really talented indie studios make great games, but they don't necessarily have the resources to do overly comprehensive security work. There are some game companies, I won't name names, but it rhymes with D-Day, that I don't necessarily trust with the innermost parts of my computer in any particular sense. So... For those who are more concerned with this, is there any potential compromise to the kernel level access? For example, I could imagine if the driver were optional or only installed for competitive tournaments, or maybe the driver's open source so that anybody can see for themselves if they're comfortable installing it. Some of these options would be fairly fairly practical, like um, the idea of having a optional uh, driver just for competitive experiences it is something that I've explored at some of the studios I've worked at. It really, it really comes down to the the product goals of the this game studio who are making the game as to what kind of environment that they want to propose. Uh, for example, in a highly competitive game, the idea that uh, the best anti-cheat technology is reserved for like the most competitive environment could have a, a chilling effect that signals to the rest of the player base that they are getting a lesser uh, untrusted experience, which could drive away players, uh, which is of particular concern in these free-to-play games since the vast majority of players aren't going to be playing at that, that top tier. Um, however, um, at other parts, Parts of my career, I've worked as uh, sort of an esports uh, officiator referee, and we do in those situations have additional checks. Uh, for example, one of the first things I ever did in the games industry was checking peripherals, um, mice and keyboard, uh, for potential modifications that could include cheating software uh, for a big esports tournament for for a game developer. Um, and so there, like. There are additional uh, things that get applied to to sort of esports and tournament play, but um, part of the aspirational fantasy of competitive games is the climb to those professional ranks, which could be damaged if that climb is considered compromised. But like I said earlier, not all games have kernel-level anti-cheat, and many of them are still successful competitive games. So one of the things that game developers could do to avoid having uh, to build sophisticated technology like kernel-level anti-cheat is to design games where the threat landscape is uh, less severe um, for uh, or the um, social dynamics of the game uh, make cheating less appealing. Now, that's interesting. How would that work? For example, there's an indie game called Among Us, which is a social deduction sort of murder mystery game. 
Um, and there are quite a few cheats that were around at the beginning of that game, uh, less so now because they have good anti-cheat technology, but it wasn't really an existential threat to the game itself because you generally only played Among Us with people that you already knew or had some other social connection to. So there was an implied like social pressure that if someone cheated in your Among Us game, you would just not play with them anymore. While on the other hand, games like uh, League of Legends, Call of Duty, Fortnite, all use matchmaking systems. So you're much less likely to be in a game with people that you have a social connection to. So it really becomes up to the platform, the game developers to be the arbiters that keep matches fair rather than any sort of social contract that uh, social groups can opt into. Right. That was actually one of the most interesting things that I came across in this research is at one point you wrote about how anti-cheat isn't just code and it's not just community monitoring even it's about making the game design itself cheat resistant if i recall correctly um are there more creative ways like this that developers can implement to more effectively stamp out cheating perhaps without even needing to race to the bottom of your computer yes so um the way a game is built and designed can have a very large um, impact on what kind of cheat technology is really called for for your, for your game. But like everything, there, there's trade-offs. So for example, um, if you have a, a first-person shooter that uses peer-to-peer networking for its servers um, so that one of the players is effectively hosting the session rather than a, a central server, that can create, uh, well, it can decrease the cost of running the game from an infrastructure standpoint, can also create some advantages for sort of uh, latency, like at least some of the players will have very good low latency gameplay. But on the other hand, um, it's much harder to police without anti-cheat technology because you don't control the infrastructure the game is running on. Or uh, alternatively, you can have games where almost all of the logic of the game is running on a server controlled by the game developer. Um, This is, for example, how League of Legends works. And it drastically changes what kinds of cheats are available to be created. For example, in first-person shooters, it's fairly common for there to be a type of cheat called a wall hack or ESP, where you can see... Uh, where all the players are on the on the level through walls. And that gives you a big advantage because you can see where someone is before they come around the corner to shoot you. But in games like League of Legends, where the vast majority of the logic is happening on a server controlled by a game developer, they can not send the uh, position data to your client. So even if you have a, a cheat that is reading through the game client's memory, there won't be information that you're not meant to have Finally, how well does anti-cheat actually work? Like, is it all this? Is it worth all this trouble if cheaters are just going to find some other way? Anti-cheat isn't perfect, but uh, it's sort of a supply chain disruption. By making anti-cheat systems that are more and more effective, it becomes more difficult and time-consuming and skill-intensive to make cheats, which both makes them rarer, but also makes them more expensive. Um, If to develop a cheat, you need to be an expert reverse engineer and understand the internals of the Windows kernel 
and understand the internals of the game engine that the game is created in, that's much harder as a barrier to entry than, say, using a, a debugger to change your health value from zero to 100 or giving yourself infinite money by just changing some bytes in memory. And what this does is it disincentivizes uh, sort of the hobbyist cheat developer because um, if if it's hard, it's less fun. Um, Or if you've put all that effort in, you've got a higher incentive to monetize it. And it is much easier for game publishers, game developers to deal with cheat developers if they have to interact with the the uh, broader economy. If you need to accept payment in return for cheats, you leave much more of a paper trail and also uh, showing more um, obviously demonstrable harm to the, the game studio that makes legal avenues much more attractive to, to pursue. Paul, that does it for my prepared questions. Is there anything that we haven't gotten to that's important to mention or any last word that you'd like to leave us with? Game developers would love to not ship anti-cheat. It would save them time, it save them money, uh, and it, often anti-cheat requires skill sets that are not otherwise used at the studio. So it would simplify things tremendously if anti-cheat wasn't required. But these companies have decided that it is because they think it is part of the way they can best serve their players. CK Music